Thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming along this evening. Um, what we were going to do, if you don't mind getting up, I know you've just all got settled down, was actually start off by going through next door so you can have a look at the piece that I've got here in the gallery. Um, I can tell you a little bit about it and then we'll come back through here and, and have a discussion, not just about this piece, but hopefully about um, some of the other work that I've done in the past. Uh, the other thing we want to say at the beginning is we don't just want this to be about us two, we want it to be as open a uh, conversation as possible. So if there's anything you want to ask at any point, please do just stick your hands up because this is, this is opening the conversation up to you guys as well. And the piece that I made here is meant to be provocative, it's meant to be asking questions about uh, the forthcoming referendum, so it's meant to be sparking debate, so it'd be interesting to hear what you think about it anyway. So, without further ado, <laughs> let's go next door. So the piece I've made is here, it's called After the Revolution, Who Will Clean Up the Mess? And all of this equipment has just been hired in for the uh, duration of the exhibition from a specialist stage effects company. And it's all going to sit here for the first half of the exhibition doing nothing. Um, some of you may have seen this little detonation unit which is here. There's one button um, that can be pressed to activate these cannons. They're confetti cannons which will be filled full of the confetti that's here, um, which will shoot out <laughs> gallery covering um, the floor and, and Keith Farquhar's artworks which are behind you there with confetti and this event will only happen if there's a yes vote in the referendum on independence um, so what I wanted to do with this piece is, 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 is I guess to try to simulate the um, atmosphere of uncertainty and this um, the, the potential for anticlimax that exists within society at the moment. So this artwork has two potential futures, which you can only imagine um, at this point. So, I mean, one of them is that nothing will happen, that it will just stay the same, but the other is that there will be this kind of massive celebration, this moment of excitement, which then could, could end in a lot of mess being created. So I guess I, guess I see this, like, as... Um, it's quite an apolitical piece, really, and though it's dealing with this, this incredibly um, important moment in, 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 the, in the history of politics of, in the UK, it's, it's kind of 
maybe trying to visualise how I feel about the event at the moment, and maybe how a lot of people feel, that the kind of voting, for the set, we hear so many competing arguments about coming from either sides that nobody can really know what's going to happen um, after the event um, and, and what chain of events could be, could be sparked by it. So we're going to have an event on the night of the, of the referendum vote if you pick out one of these flyers behind you, this kind of advertising the referendum results party that we're having in here where a small group of people will be invited to come and witness the moment in which they're uh, detonated, um, if they are detonated, otherwise we'll, we'll, all, we'll all go home um, kind of disappointed. So I don't know if there's any specific questions about that now. Uh, otherwise, we, now we've, kind of, we've got, got an idea of, of what it is I'm, I'm showing here. We could go back through and uh, discuss, discuss things in more detail. Okay. So with this particular piece, what, what intrigued me was, as you said, the potential there and the kind of for me, anyway, kind of sadness if, if those cannons don't go off, if they just remain inanimate. But what I'm interested is in, because it's such a kind of potential-filled piece that, that you've made and it is asking a question, um, what is the sequel to it? Are you just going to leave it either way or is there going to be a follow-up? Because I, I feel like there needs to be some kind of follow-up because it's you've said that this is quite an apolitical piece, but I think that actually... It's very political in terms of what you're trying to ask about post-revolutionary processes or post-big um, transitional shifts where you do have the party, you do have the celebration, it's amazing, it feels exhilarating, a bit like revolutions that have happened around the world in Tahrir Square and elsewhere, and then that painful <laughs> work of, of trying to create an alternative to what has preceded you and... I don't know if you've seen The Battle of Algiers. Anybody in this room? Battle of Algiers, very seminal film, basically uh, about the Algerian revolution against um, French colonial rule, where there's a sort of commander in the film, and he says, you know, actually our revolution's only going to begin at, once we've overthrown the French. That's when we're actually beginning. It doesn't end when they've gone. It begins when they've gone. So where are you going to go? Yeah, uh, I mean... That's a really interesting question on lots of different levels. I think, as I was saying before, this, I can, uh, this piece, I can't show this piece again. It's just for this specific moment in time. And the equipment is all hired in just for this one exhibition. So this piece itself will only exist um, for the counterpoint exhibition. Um, but I guess I am really interested in, but also concerned about what happens after a massive political change and I think that's what I'm trying to draw attention to um, and it's kind of what we see played out in, in the um, particularly after the Arab Spring how it's, it's always the bad guys um, who seem to be the ones capable of grabbing power when everything is um, set into disarray so I mean I've been reading a lot about the kind of the literature for the yes vote and all the potential that's in there about uh, um, developing a new society within Scotland, a kind of utopian uh, socialist dream, um, that, that the reality of such a huge shift, which could potentially be you know, the biggest change in, 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 in the UK for the last 300 years, in UK politics for the last 300 years, there's going to be lots of very powerful people, lots of very wealthy people just waiting to take advantage of that. Um, so I guess I am, I am worried about it um, as much as um, anybody else might be. But I'm also, I guess, optimistic that something better could emerge. But I'm also, I guess, preparing myself for nothing to happen as well and what the consequence of not seizing that opportunity will be um, but also like as I said this this piece is at the moment I'm thinking that I probably will vote yes but I think it is very difficult to make a rational decision um, 
when faced with this question, because we hear so many competing arguments, I think it is a completely emotional decision. And I think that people might find the moment on the day when they're in the polling box that they end up doing something that they didn't expect. Um, and also, equally, what they vote for may not be what they get if, if, um, if, if, this, if anybody else has read this book, um, if it doesn't pan out how, how these guys are planning. Uh, so, the sequel, well, I think the sequel will, will come, like, next year, I suppose, when we see, when we see what, what actually happens. Yeah. Um, so another aspect of, of your work that I find very interesting is, is the activism kind of manifesto format that you use um, when you create your environmental policy uh, with your anti-capitalist aerobics session. I don't know if anyone's seen, but it's about six minutes long. Is it six minutes of a, of a sort of workout routine to techno music with this kind of anti-capitalist manifesto about decreasing consumption, um, decreasing our use of energy, trying to change um, the motivational structures that exist under patriarchy towards being, you know, super fit and skinny and trying to divorce yourself away from that and shift to the kind of motivational structures that should be there, which are about rewarding conservation of energy, cooperation, um, getting rid of this sort of body image narcissism. So I guess the question there, when I was watching that earlier, kind of made me feel what what is the difference between what you do in the art world and what activists do because in some ways I see quite a similarity um, because with activism you can end up doing quite a lot of single issue direct actions or, or campaign activities that are performative and make a public intervention and call on people to respond and change their minds but but they don't tell a more integrated story. So you're asking people to do things, but you're not kind of showing the change or how it can be made. It's almost like a, a bit like a sort of rah-rah through a megaphone, but you get paid for it and you do it in a gallery. Yeah. Um, so what, what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, it's, I moved to Scotland six years ago, so I live in Glasgow, um, and actually, like, I, I I can trace back the moment when I became sort of more politicised with, with moving up here. And I don't know whether it was a, was a result of, of living in Scotland. It was more a result of... I came to Glasgow to go to the art school to, to do um, the MFA course. And I had a scholarship, so I had the time to really um, reflect on what was going on in the world around me for the first time. The little anecdote I like to tell is that I moved to Scotland on the 15th of September 2008, which is actually the same date that Lehman Brothers, which was the biggest investment bank in the world, or second biggest investment bank in the world, filed for its um, massive bank bankruptcy causing the start of the financial crisis. So that happened on the same day, this massive global event, the 15th of September, as I was coming up the M1 with all of my possessions. Um, to move into my new flat in Glasgow. So that was the backdrop for my study, was like this, this, this huge crisis of capitalism. So the, what I started to do was to use the skills that I developed before that, um, research skills uh, that I developed for my practice, to use them to investigate what was going on um, in the world around me. Actually, I'll show just... This was one of the first pieces that I made called The History of Financial Crisis, which was a history of capitalism over the last century reenacted through the medium of popcorn-making machines. So it unfolds over the course of a day within a gallery, and these are activated at different points um, through, throughout that day to represent different financial crises. And of course what you see is that there's an acceleration in the frequency of crises up to the present day. So it's doing little things like that, like this, that should enable me to do that research and understand these things for myself, but then also to share that with an audience and draw attention to things that I was concerned about. So I started to do work like that that, that had a more political agenda. 
But at the same time, um, I was really questioning what the purpose of art was. You know, why continue making art? Because the, the backdrop to all of my thinking was, 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 was concerns about um, climate change and about um, the, the likely future that's like to, like, that, that, that we're likely to face over the course of the next century where global temperatures continue to increase, causing all sorts of, of problems in terms of food production and scrambles for resources and all of these things. Like this future that we're heading towards quite blindly, um, whilst pretending that everything's actually okay, and going around our business, driving our cars and just carrying on as, as normal. So that was the backdrop that I was trying to... So I started to think, well, you know, how can you continue making art? How can you justify it when actually, really, we should stop producing pointless objects and start tackling the problems that we're facing in a much more direct way? So it was at that point that I started um, campaigning. So I launched the Bring Back British Rail campaign in 2009, um, which was one of the things I was doing whilst at Glasgow School of Art. So the campaign headquarters were actually in the art school for a short time. But the idea was to popularise the idea the popularise the idea of public ownership of public transport. And that came from an environmental perspective that I was concerned that people weren't turning to public transport because it was overpriced, because the system was dysfunctional, because it had been privatised in, in nineteen 94 and since then ticket prices have continued to continue to go up to increase so the private the marketized systems that we had in place for running our infrastructure and also supplying our energy were acting as a barrier to enabling people to reduce their their carbon footprint so it became it all and rather than campaign directly, like hectoring people, oh, we've got to do something about climate change, I could see this systemic flaw in, in the way our infrastructure was, um, uh, was being run um, as a real tangible issue that people could connect to. Like everybody has the frustration of trying to book a ticket where you have to book it months in advance because it costs a fortune and there's so many different franchises and you have to change between them all and all the trains are painted different colours. Like everybody has that frustration. Like, and everybody ends up getting ripped off. And everybody has that thing where they booked a ticket months in advance and, and um, then they have to change their plans and they just lose, lose the money and all the rest of it. So it was about thinking about what I could actively do. So I've got some stickers. You can go on the Bring Back British Rail have, uh, website. Have you created any art pieces that specifically relate to this? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what, I guess, what... The campaign itself definitely is an artwork. It's a real campaign. There's now, it is mainly online on Facebook. There's more than 75,000 supporters supporting that cause, so who I now have quite a lot of responsibility for. Um, but I still saw it as important um, facet. Uh, I never wanted to go f to go full time into campaigning because I thought that I would be able to draw more attention to the issues that I cared about if I operated across several fields. So if I had fingers in lots of different parties. So I guess that's the kind of role that I've carved out for myself as someone who can, who can um, still operate in the art world, still um, have one foot in and one foot out, I suppose. And, and now um, that I'm also teaching at the art school in Dundee to, to have a finger in that pie as well. But to, to, be, to have this sort of multi-pronged approach where I could draw attention to things and also actively try to change them at the same time. But yes, of course, campaigning has influenced um, things that I've decided to draw attention to in, in artworks as well. Yeah, the thing that, that struck me first about your work is this kind of looking at cause and effect and kind of exposing some of the banalities of, of capitalism through kind of remote control, remote control devices or things kind of just popping off like these popcorn machines. You had another piece with the mobile phone text, getting text messages and activating a 
Coca-Cola can with the with with headphones to dance, and people were invited to send you text messages. And that be interesting to sort of hear what your comment is on social media and how people are relating to that, because a lot of your work has sort of elements of social media activism around it before social media actually took off. So there was the work you did where the tea blogs, the tea blogs, <laughs> where <laughs> you you blogged every time you had a, a cup of tea and, and what you were thinking about and what you were doing and turned that into pieces of, of work that people could interact with, which is kind of what a lot of people are doing now on Facebook and and Twitter and I wonder what that says about us. <laughs> but another element of another of these sort of like remotely controlled um, responsive pieces is the vending machine. So this deposits a packet of crisps every time. Is it the BBC or the mainstream media at all? Was it the BBC? It's the BBC news headlines. Yeah. Relates to the crisis. Yeah. Or, or search terms relating to the recession. So there's lots of different search terms in there. And then it will vend out a free packet of crisps whenever it picks up one of those search terms. Like, well, th there's about 50 different words like crisis and and and. So what are you what are you saying there about crisis and capitalism and our our agency? Because it almost feels like this sort of invisible hand of. I feel like I can see the invisible hand of the market and kind yeah. of standardised. Um, media control in some ways that, that doesn't ever really tell the full story and I feel like it's quite appropriate that it's it's represented in a capitalist sort of transaction or response so the dancing coke can the crisp packet out of the machine but where's the empowerment yeah. I mean this piece it's interesting you picked up on on that one because it's I guess it's um, it's part of a long line of artworks that I guess I've been doing over the last 10 years or so, where I've tried to visualise events that are happening in the real world as close to that event happening. So to visualise something in a gallery as close to that, in time to that event happening in the real world, to, to create a system that can sort of respond on my behalf. So the piece that's next door is this idea that um, there's a pressure, not just on artists, but on everybody um, to know what's happening in the world almost instantaneously. The, the way that, that society is, is, is accelerating, um, the, the pace of that pressure, that pressure to know what's happening as it happens, as the events unfold, un unfold seems, seems to be um, increasing out of control. So I guess what I wanted to do with these artworks, with the, with the vending machine particularly, was to take the pressure off me as an artist to respond instantaneously to events that were going on in the world by creating an artwork that could do it on my behalf. So this little piece of software um, scans the new head news headlines um, continually and pick when it finds something it will vend out a packet of crisps. So it will respond to these little events, these little bits of bad news about economic doom and gloom instantaneously giving crisps to people who are visiting the gallery. So I, I mean, wait, you said where's the empowerment? I mean, I guess Although I use quite playful tactics in a lot of my work, they are they are quite cynical <laughs> in lots of ways. Like the artworks are, um, they're not aren't, they're not posing solutions. You know, they're more saying, "Aren't we a stupid species for having got us into this situation?" That's really what they're saying. They're saying this is not going to end. <laughs> This is not going to end very well. Like, um, so in that respect, like, I think that's why I keep coming back to the gallery because it, it, coming uh, not coming back to the gallery, but coming back to art as a way of like uh, venting my concerns is because 
it provides a platform where you can almost laugh, you know, laugh at, laugh at the, the situation hold, that we've got ourselves into. And you can hold someone's attention really clearly. You don't have to mediate this really. Someone's going to come into a gallery and look at it and think about it and take it in. You're not trying to grab someone's attention on the street. Um, but a lot of your work isn't in galleries. What, what's been, do you think, one of the most sort of effective and, and moving pieces of work that you've done that's outside of the gallery, that's had kind of currency and, and travelled most, yeah. resonated with you? Because that's the, another sort of similarity I see between, I guess, performance art um, or political art and activism, which is it's quite hard to quantify the result. And, and a lot of people do get cynical and say, well, what's the point of that? What was that piece of art about? Or why did you do that protest? You know, the two people came to it, but you don't know how people are reacting to it. So how, how, do you, how have you managed to quantify it? And which one would you say has had the most impact? Wow. Yeah, I, I guess um, this piece actually wasn't actually shown in the gallery you can see at the bottom it was shown at an art college and it was made in response to watching students at the art college and seeing how they use the canteen and the vending machine because I think as much as possible I like my work my work to exist beyond the confines of the gallery in fact this is quite rare for me to do something within a gallery space um, so let's see if I've got any other slides I have used my, um, I guess, my admin skills to coordinate events um, as, as much as I do create ex exhibits for galleries. So I've, the idea, let me see, what can I show? I, I could talk about these two pieces. So I, want, I wanted to kind of create um, networks or frameworks that would bring people together. So I'm particularly interested in um, people like myself, artists who are self-employed, who may find themselves in isolated situations. So the Workathon for the Self-Employed was an event that I, I organised in 2011 where we aimed to set the record for the most self-employed people working in the same place at the same time over the course of a nine-to-five day. So the idea was to um, reverse two of the negative side effects of self-employment. So one is being isolated um, and the, the other is kind of the lack of any regulated... Um, working hours like self-employed people i don't i'm sure there's some self-employed people in the audience who find themselves working uh, all the time not a nine to five but at the weekends and in the evenings as well and don't take holidays either that's what we were talking about earlier um so i wanted to create this sort of spectacle that would bring people together and would offer them this sort of temporary community that could perhaps open the doors to more sociable working environment um, in the future and it, people love that people and people we enforce the nine to five really really strictly as well so at five o'clock it was like we're all off to the pub like and self-employed people rarely get that because they they often just keep going um, past five o'clock and, and past ten o'clock and however long it takes to, to finish off what they need to do so I guess the this event we did it in London we had 54 people working together in this space um, which was at Toynbee Hall um, in London um, and then once we had the record 54 people we created a bit of competition with the northeast by staging another event in Newcastle to attempt to break that record. And that little element of competition actually brought more people together. We had 70 people who came and experienced it here. So I saw myself as a sort of, because I wasn't working in either, because I didn't live in either of those um, areas, I was just somebody going in who was 
initiating this thing, initiating this community, and putting people in touch with each other. And I would send an email out um, so that everybody had each other's email addresses afterwards, so that any connections that had been made during that day could, could continue. Um, and another project which I ran for a year, which again is, because a lot of what I do, I guess, is, is it comes from my own experience of, of being a self-employed artist and those sorts of the, the things, the negative things that I experience. And one of those is the competitive nature of the art world and the fact that although you have peers within the art world, um, everybody else is an artist and you're essentially competing for the same opportunities. Um, but that's because of the, the funding structure and the exhibition structure that we, that we have within the art world. So the Artist Lottery Syndicate was exactly what it says, an artist lottery syndicate. But I was really inspired by this word syndicate, which means a group of people working together for a common cause. Um, and the idea that if we all chipped in an equal amount and bought lottery tickets every day, uh, every 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 draw for a year um, there was 40 of us doing this uh, and that amounted to like more than seven thousand pounds worth of lottery tickets over the course of a year but the idea was that if we won uh, we would all get an equal share so it wouldn't just be like one artist succeeding which is quite often what happens in the art world it's a winner takes all market so you get these art stars um, who who are catapulted to superstardom and become incredibly wealthy, like people like Damien Hirst or, or Anish Kapoor, who's a multi-millionaire apparently, makes more money through resales, like he makes 10 grand through resales every month apparently, like it's kind of obscene. Um, but that this syndicate would ensure that we would all be winners. Unfortunately, <laughs> This is what we won after having spent that nearly seven grand on, on um, lottery tickets. But what came out of this is that, that, that there was this community of 40 people and we decided to reinvest that money, 1,309 pounds, not in lottery tickets, not putting it on a horse, but in the, the very sensible investment of the, the premium bonds. So <laughs> we put that money back into the premium bond. And we, this became a new project called the Artist Bond, which is a lifelong project. Um, <laughs> little musical interlude. Uh, the Artist Bond is a lifelong project, which is now open to other artists to join. So the idea is that it will grow and grow. Um, there's 120 members now, all of which have invested, all of whom have invested 30 pounds, which was was roughly the equivalent of, of, of what we won each um, in this giant check. And the idea of the artist bond, I mean, obviously the bond is a is a is a pun on um, the premium bonds, but this idea that we we are now bound together over the course of our careers. And we have a chance of collectively winning a million pounds every month, so they say. Um, and so at some point over the course of our lives, we may hit the jackpot. And at which point, I mean, I'm not, like, if we win a million pounds, then they get split between all 120 of us. And, you know, that could keep us going for a year or so. And would that, do you think that would translate into maybe some cooperative pieces if you're no longer having to struggle so much to make your own names and your own money if you're comfortable with your money and you've created the syndicate could you imagine doing like a collaborative piece with some of those people yeah i mean the idea the i mean the artist bond it's you know we're bound together through this financial agreement but the um through that, I mean, there's a, there's a there's a mailing list. We're all connected through this mailing list, and it's there. We're all in different parts of the UK, but we all have a shared interest. I guess it's about kind of aligning interests. It's a system for aligning interests, um, and it, I was really amazed how unanimously everybody voted at the end of this process, not to take the £30 or whatever that they'd want, but to reinvest it so we could stay bound together. 
So it would be amazing to see what happens if we did win, win the million pounds and whether there is some sort of collective agree, agreement to spend that on something more worthwhile um, that could benefit that could benefit other artists into the future. We'll see. Can I? <laughs> so um, something that I'm always interested in is because um, when I saw your work on for the self-employed, it made me think about all the it's probably millions of people in the UK that are on self-employed contracts and a large number of those are not uh, sitting at home in front of computers, a large number of those are working in minimum wage jobs through agencies and they're kind of bogus self-employed, they're yeah. not really self-employed, they have no control over their own labour at all. Um, and it made me wonder about the class composition of the art world and who gets to create and present um, either in gallery spaces or elsewhere and I wondered if you could respond to that if there's any if your work tries to tackle the question of class and the class system because your work's clearly very anti-capitalist it, it's got a focus on reclaiming the commons the idea of the commons public services um, the idea of what should belong to all of us, education, health, transport, freedom of movement, water, everything that's been privatised basically, or in the process of being privatised. Um, so that clearly speaks to a kind of egalitarian agenda, but where's the comment on class structures and overcoming those? Yeah. Um, well, the art world is an incredibly elitist Place. I think that's one of the reasons that I felt such anxiety about continuing to work um, in gallery context. It's really interesting actually to think um, about um, the fact that the art world is, you know, seen, the galleries are seen as this incredibly sort of elite environment, but yet that the majority of them are free and open to the public. Like, I was, um, compared to other more popular forms of um, culture, like theatre and comedy and all of those things, you actually have to pay to get to. It shouldn't be the case, because anybody can essentially walk into this gallery or the majority of other galleries for free at any, at any point, but yet there's still this barrier, which is why, um, I try to do so much beyond the gallery as possible to engage people um, beyond uh, the the um, art world institutions, um, and that's also, I guess, why I use the popular media as much as possible. Like for me, it's a it's a success um, if an idea because I have got that little clip of the vending machine that was on the BBC local news, like, to use these media channels as a way of reaching out beyond um, the conventions of, of the art world to reach more people. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know if I can take on the entire <laughs> British class system on my own, but I'm going to try next year. That's the sequel. <laughs> Maybe I won't have to if the socialist dream comes, becomes a reality. Oh, hopefully. Because um, another, before we open up to questions, because it's 20 past seven, um, but I, d I don't know if you can like flick to, there's two things actually that, that are a response to the Artist Lottery Syndicate and that competitive art world that you're so conscious of, and that was the um, Artists Anonymous. Oh, yeah. That I think is an amazing project, um, and that it could be reproduced elsewhere. Oh, and I wanted to talk about that. Oh, yeah, project. okay. <laughs> I we didn't quite know what we were going to talk about, so we just put a little selection. So, do you want to say a little bit about this? Yeah, this is... Um, I guess, and it, well, it's basically a support group for artists. So the idea is that we, we ran this for a year and a half from the CCA in, Gla in Glasgow. And the idea was that it would be 
an open platform for artists to say the unsayable, to say those anxieties and pressures that they feel on a day-to-day -day basis working in the art world, but that they have to keep hidden because you can't, because you're competing with other artists, you kind of have to, you have to hide these anxieties. So if your friend says to you, oh, I've got an exhibition at so-and-so, and in your heart you're feeling, oh, how did they get an exhibition at so-and-so? That's not fair. Like, that those, all these unspoken things would just be out in the open, and that through that, through disclosing these things, that we could sort of support each other and, and develop a more, um, more collective way of operating, I suppose, that wasn't so individualised. So it was kind of both an experiment and a practical support network, as well as a sort of artwork in itself that aimed to draw attention to some of those negative aspects of the art world. Did you gather data on it? I didn't, no, it wasn't the documented one at all. Gathered data on. <laughs> That's why it's just documented by this picture of empty chairs. Um, this is from the first day that we did it. Uh, because it was it was never recorded or anything. We actually had a trained um, psychotherapist sit in on the sessions. Um, but I, I mean, I have an ongoing interest in, in mental health. I'm clutching this book because it's I'm a recovering data collector. I don't know if some of you may have heard of this book, which was published in 2009. Um, but it's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek sort of therapy session, like looking at some of my older artworks where I collected information about my everyday life, um, as though they were symptoms of, of, of some, some horrible mental disorder that was inflicted by childhood growing up in Thatcher's Britain. That's the, <laughs> that is the, uh, the idea behind the book. Um, and some of that probably is true. Like, I'm sure quite a lot of the mental health problems that I, that that myself and other people suffer are the result of those changes in society that um, Thatcher brought in. But I guess I'm interested in, I've always had an interest in self-help, in self but more increasingly in, in peer support and, and the way that just, I guess, talking, being open about problems and sharing problems can, and supporting each other can be, you know, half a step to to addressing them and, and solving them. I also think it's very liberating. I mean, for example, activists or people who work in NGOs or trade unions or are in the kind of business, in inverted commas, of social change and social justice. And you were telling me how you spent eight months on this kind of uh, masterclass of campaigning course. And there's so much that goes on in those worlds that is, is deeply buried because on the face of it, you're doing a great job, you're you know, trying to organise a union or you're trying to you know, campaign around climate change, but actually it's still very much in a capitalist framework. You're still subject to all kinds of pressures and relationships with bosses and authorities and structures and you end up disciplining yourself, censoring yourself. Um, but because these are kind of lib liberal or progressive or kind of lefty environments, a hypocrisy can grow and a kind of burnout can grow and a real disconnect between what you're doing um, and a kind of a amnesia almost about how you are still part of capitalism and there are, there are many dynamics that you're reproducing but you know in, in other jobs you could be so clear about it you could be so open about it how you, you feel oppressed and it's a shit job and you want to do something else but in the jobs that have this more bigger cultural value um, it's really difficult to talk about these things and a lot of people don't and that's why I really like that one. But I wanted to say a quick thing about, or ask you a quick question about your weather forecast performance because oh, yeah. I really like that one. Um, so Ellie did this. I can't remember which way. <laughs> the other one. forecast. So this I watched earlier and um, it's kind of, it's jokey and pastiche of like a weather forecast, except it's global, um, it's quite pessimistic, but because of the sort of garish colours and graphs and the clarity in it and the statistics that are part of it, it seems very educational. And there's something quite optimistic and positive about it, and you do end it on a positive note. 
Um, but I feel like this is one of the most easily kind of readable um, pieces that I've come across. I feel like I could show this to a lot of very unpolitical people and they would get yeah. it. Um, do you know how much of a reception it's had? Because you showed it in um, outside the headquarters, national headquarters of the BBC. Yeah, that's in Sulphur Keys. I mean, do check this out online if, you, if you're interested. You can see it on youtube.com slash other forecast. Um, but, so I um, curated this project with a friend of mine called John O'Shea. He's an artist based in Manchester. So we worked together. It, it, it was a collaborative project to invite um, five artists to come to Media City to use a green screen, so the screen that, that, that a normal weather forecast would be made on, to present a sort of alternative future, vision of the future. So this idea of like um, trying to predict the future or, or trying to imagine what the future uh, holds, I guess is something that I'm always trying to deal with, something that the piece next door tries to deal with. Um, and I guess what I wanted to do with this, um, other forecast that I made was to really like just like lay out. I can see um, that we're on lots of negative trajectories. Um, so I was looking at data from lots of different aspects of of um, of our lives, but particularly the trend towards obesity, which has happened over the last um, thirty years. The trend towards um, energy consumption, which has been in, also been increasing over the last 30 years, um, the trend towards single-person households, so this kind of atomization of society, the fact that more and more people are choosing to live on their own rather than choosing to live communally, um, and the impact that this was having on carbon emissions and projected global temperature um, increase over the next century. So I guess it was just picking up these snippets of information and saying, well, hang on a minute, if we've got an obesity crisis going on, we've got a climate crisis coming on, what's the future going to look like? So I kind of conclude this by thinking that it's going to be a lot of very fat, very lonely, very sweaty people trying to deal with all these terrible extreme weather events. Um, and what can we do about that? So. I guess that's, <laughs> for me, it is very didactic, I mean, it's completely didactic, but I was just trying to, it's a sort of manifesto, because I see what everything that I do is trying to um, investigate, expose and challenge the absurd consequences of capitalism and the impact that free market forces have on society and our individual lives. So, for me, this was a kind of manifesto saying, what are those absurd consequences? What is this future that we're heading towards if we carry on on, on, on our current trajectory? Um, so, I laid it all out in the other forecast, and now, like, I guess, I'm going to spend the next few years trying to unpick all of these, all of these um, individual things. and to try to make more sense of them and create more awareness so that people might change, change their behaviour. Grand. So I, I am conscious of time. It's nearly 7.30 and no one's had a chance to bring oh, no, up questions. But we've got some time for questions. So this is your chance, audience. Pitch in. Has anyone got any comments or questions? Yeah. earlier actually like I I guess when I went to art school um, in 1998 to 2001 like it was just on the cusp of the beginning of I guess like the internet revolution digital cameras like and I wasn't quite aware of the significance of those events but fortunately I learned those tools so I did a web design course and I 
at university, I actually trace that back even further, shows how a product of Thatcherism I am. John Major had this policy, um, little known policy, that all children who were doing their GCSEs in 1995 in England had to do technology. G GCSE, so I benefited from that, but I learned how to do circuits and things like that. I just had those skills, so it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision to use technology, it was just that those were the tools that I knew how to use, but I guess I'm conscious now that I am using um, technology that is of our time, like Putting things on, putting things online, and using using social media, and that I think that's important because I guess I'm speaking about things that are very much of our time as well. Anyone else? Yeah. I'm sure we could have like linked it up to a piece of software that would have activated it um, automatically. But I guess I I always had this idea that we'd be in the gallery, like that a small group of people would be able to witness it. Like, and I guess I feel like a responsibility for this thing as well to be there to make sure that. Um, it doesn't totally just trash the place. Say, <laughs> so looking at Pat, who's the <laughs> curator here. Um, uh, so I am going to be there to see see what unfolds. Um, but I'm kind of interested. Like one thing we we were talking about earlier is this idea of endurance as well. Um, because it's an all-night event, and I, I've done a, I've done one all-night event before for the general election in 2010. I did a general election drinking game. Um, so this idea of being, <laughs> I should see if I've got sliders. I've got slides of that actually. There it is. Um, so this idea of kind of enduring. <laughs> witnessing the results unfold building up to this moment but I mean this referendum is going to be like nothing that we've ever experienced that and I still got to do quite a lot of research <laughs> says looking at Deborah um, about how they plan to, to announce the results like do they plan to like count it in regions and to give I'm imagining there'll be pressure from the media for there to be some sort of drip 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 of of information, otherwise how are they going to fill a whole night of television, like, building up to that moment? So I've still got quite a lot of research to do, but, yeah, I guess I, I, kind, of, I, kind, of want, I kind of want to be there and And would it be up. documented, the canons? I mean, you're going to be camped in this gallery, aren't you, for the night? Yeah, next door, yeah. Um, I encourage you all to pick up a little flyer, I hope you saw those on the side. Um, we're actually going to webcast it throughout the night, so we'll have to be setting up um, a series of cameras, which will will just be focused on the cannons, kind of cutting between them. Nothing much will be happening, a bit like what's happening at the moment, um, but kind of counting down to that moment when they announce the results. So it will just be this, you know, this. It's only going to last a minute when it happens as well. Just. If, sorry, 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 Mark, yeah, if. Um, uh, and so whatever happens, it's just going to be this wham, bam, thank you, man moment, um, blink if you miss it, and then you'll just be left with all this confetti on the floor. So people will be able to tune in and watch it. Um, you won't be tempted. <laughs> you, you won't be 
you're all a bit leathered, just press the button anyway if it's a no. Just be like, oh, I'm going to celebrate life anyway. Everybody asks me that, but I'm a real stickler. I won't let them. Like, you've got to play by the rules. Like, what's the point of inventing these systems if you're then just going to? That's true. <laughs> Maybe you can have some, like, party, massive load of party pops and just go outside. But, no, but then you'll be seen as celebrating with a no. I bet Deborah will do it. <laughs> when she's had a drink, we won't be able to stop her. <laughs> so. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So the question there was that the system is invented to be overthrown. Is that what you just said? Yeah. Right, just for the recording. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I have, I have in the past, like, I mean, this system just ended up, this system, which was that we had to drink one shot of beer for every every um, seat in Parliament that the party we were representing won. This system just ended up with chaos and me being sick in a bucket under the table at four o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> the system can be perfectly mapped out, but you never quite know what's going to happen when you put humans through that system. And I guess that is a fundamental thing that I'm really interested in. like. The relationship between trying to control something by defining how it will work and then putting that control completely completely out of your hands and in an event that you have no control over. And there wasn't so much a question but maybe more a comment or a feedback to you. And it's very related to what we've just been discussing. There has been quite a lot of feedback from artists and from audiences since the exhibition wishing there was an alternative if there was a report, wishing that something would occur that wouldn't just be something inert. And I mean, is that something and considering this conversation that you might consider that might be possible? There are more, there's more than one month to go. Do they have any ideas, Pat? <laughs> the status quo, it's accepting what we already had, or what we already have. So for me, the no vote, it just has to stay exactly as it is now. Um, but the, the good thing about that is that there is no mess to clear up. Like, we just carry on as normal. Um, Alan, who we hired the cannons from, comes and picks them up on the last day and takes them back to, to uh, in his van to Carlisle, and then we just go back to normal, and that's that. So, I think that's really important for me that 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 it is just the same. It's just the same the whole way through the exhibition, if we vote no. Um, but the. the political situation in the country, if there is a no vote, there will be thousands of people very, very unhappy. Yeah. Of course, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So 
in some ways while I take your point about Aragonese yeah. or in this exhibition, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually don't think there will be no reaction in the country. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps it was on that basis that some of the conversations that we had. But I perfectly respect and understand where But what I would like <laughs> to encourage is those people who really want to see something, see it go off, take it upon themselves to storm in and try to set it off. Because that would be, that would be that kind of visualization of that real frustration of people who wanted a yes. You know, that for me would be an ideal scenario. Like. I think you've laid down the gauntlet there. <laughs>